Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. When you think about London in the 1980s, Maybe you think about the first female prime minister. It is a thrusting, driving, strong economy. Or maybe you think about Culture Club. But something else important was happening at the time, something that was even more revolutionary. At a medical center in downtown London, a hospice doctor named Cicely Saunders was trying something new. She was giving drugs to her dying patients drugs to ease their pain. It didn't get as much TV coverage as Culture Club, but it was unusual enough that it made some talk shows. A BBC host named Judith Chalmer brought Cicely on television to talk about it. A big part of what you do in the hospice is controlling pain. So how do you do that? The interview is definitely worth looking up on YouTube. Judith has an amazing power suit with big shoulder pads, and Dr. Saunders has these big owlish glasses. It is a very 80s moment. Dr. Saunders tells Judith that she gives her patients a mix of opioids. The really important thing is giving the drug to prevent pain ever happening, and you give it regularly so that hopefully the patient can forget pain. Part of the answer is to be able to say to people... She explains her belief that patients at the end of life would be fuller, happier people if they weren't suffering. You're not going to have pain that gets out of control. You're not going to become less than yourself because of the treatment we're going to give you. These are good drugs. You can be alert, very much yourself, and they will go on working as long as you need them. Cicely Saunders, she was part of a huge shift in pain medicine. For a big chunk of the 20th century, doctors were incredibly wary of opioids. They knew they were addictive and mostly steered clear of them. Today... Today, the CDC urged doctors to stop over-prescribing opioids. The country, it says, is in the midst of an epidemic of painkiller abuse. Health authorities say on average, 78 people die each day from drug overdoses. This is The Impact on the Vox Media Podcast Network, a show about how policy affects real people. I'm your host, Sarah Cliff. And on today's episode, we will tell you how we got from Dr. Saunders giving dying patients opioids to people dying of opioid overdoses. 
There is a version of this story that you have probably already heard. It is a story about greedy pharma companies and dirty doctors prescribing these addictive, dangerous drugs. And sure, that is definitely part of it. But there is also a policy story here, too. It is a story about some genuinely well-meaning doctors trying to do the best thing for their patients. These doctors developed and spread new policies that urged all other doctors to take pain more seriously. Those well-intentioned policies did not go as planned. They helped create the nationwide opioid epidemic we're dealing with right now. Okay, before we go any further, it's helpful to understand how opioids actually work. The brain is the important thing here. It is full of these tiny little receptors that react to opioids. A doctor gave me a great analogy. He said, think of opioids as a key and the receptor as a keyhole. Whenever you take an opioid, it unlocks that keyhole and releases this really pleasurable wave of chemicals. The more keys you have, the more pleasurable chemicals you can unlock. But if you use opioids for a long time, it actually changes the chemistry of your brain. You need to use more of them to unlock pain relief, and you start to get dependent on them. Doctors knew this about opioids. It is why they steered clear of them for decades. But then their reasons for steering clear got chipped away at bit by bit. This brings us back to where we started our episode in the 1980s with our doctor friend, Cicely Saunders, the one who had those fantastic glasses. She started arguing for a very specific kind of opioid use. Part of a doctor's duty has always been to ease the pains of dying as well as to help people live as well and as long as possible. Notice that Dr. Saunders is really specific there. She says the pain of dying. Doctors across Britain and also the United States were slowly warming to the idea that you could give opioids to dying people. Addiction wasn't really an issue with this population, and these people were in so much pain. But then again, there were millions of people with chronic, constant pain. They weren't dying, and they weren't getting treatment. Doctors often had a dim view about whether or not the patient really, in fact, had pain. Dr. James Campbell is a neurosurgeon who studies pain at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Back in the 1990s, Dr. Campbell felt like a lot of his peers just ignored pain, things like back pain or arthritis. He decided to do something different in his treatment of pain. He stopped ignoring it. Patients might become very emotional and say, well, you're the first doctor that's really said to me that, you know, I believe you. Dr. Campbell saw success in his clinic, and it turns out he was not alone. Other doctors were having a similar experience, and there were more and more government reports and journal articles arguing that doctors needed to stop underestimating pain. We were busy thinking about ways to enhance awareness about the suffering that patients with pain have. 
Dr. Campbell decided to take his approach national, and he had a huge platform to do it. In 1996, he was serving as president of the American Pain Society. That year, the society gathered in Los Angeles for its annual meeting. They're in a big auditorium. Some of the leading pain specialists from all over the country are gathered there. And it is up to Dr. Campbell to give the keynote address. We have a transcript of what he said there. If pain were assessed with the same zeal as other vital signs are, it would have a much better chance of being treated properly. We need to train doctors and nurses to treat pain as a vital sign. A vital sign. There were already four. Body temperature, blood pressure, breathing rate, and pulse. Pain would be number five. And Dr. Campbell argued that physicians should check it at every single visit. The speech was a hit at the conference. One of the organizers told me about handing out little buttons that said, check the sign, and doctors were pinning them onto their jackets. The American Pain Society even trademarked the phrase, pain, the fifth vital sign. A quick note, in the 1990s, the American Pain Society did receive money from drug companies selling new opioid painkillers. We're going to talk more about those drugs in just a little bit. But Dr. Campbell maintains the funding didn't shape how he talked about pain. He says that for him, this was personal. He wanted to start a movement. He wanted doctors all across the country to start treating pain differently. The whole idea was to mandate uh, healthcare professionals to assess pain. And mandates were created. In the years after the conference, private hospitals all across the country made policy changes. Even the federal government made a policy change. The Veterans Health Administration runs the largest hospital system in the entire country. They see about 10 million patients every year. In 1998, it sent this memo to all of its clinics. The memo told doctors to ask patients about pain at every single visit. And if a patient reported pain, a doctor had to do something about it. The initiative was called Pain as the Fifth Vital Sign, exactly as Dr. Campbell had intended. So, doctors were starting to recognize more pain in their clinics, but they needed a way to treat it. After the break, we'll look at what happened when the movement to treat pain collided with a new class of opioids. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more 
and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back to The Impact. When we left off, a doctor named James Campbell had just delivered a speech that changed the course of American medicine, a speech that urged doctors to treat pain as a vital sign and ask about it at every visit. This was the mid-1990s, and it was around the same time that there was another important development that is key to understanding the opioid epidemic. They don't wear out, they go on working. They do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs... This is from a promotional video for OxyContin. It is an opioid painkiller that rolled onto the market in 1996. And OxyContin was marketed as a long-acting opioid. The manufacturers called it long-acting because it wouldn't give a big high up front. Instead, OxyContin was meant to release slowly over the course of a day. Drug companies, they told doctors that patients wouldn't get addicted to long-acting drugs because they wouldn't take them to get high. There's a caption at the bottom of this video that lets you know that the guy who is talking is a doctor. And he keeps emphasizing that these drugs are definitely not addictive. Now, in fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. This entire messaging was based on zero science, not a single study uh, comparing opioids to other therapies in the long term. This is David Yearling. Nowadays, he is a doctor who studies opioids at the Sunnybrook Institute for Research. But back in the 1990s, he was working as a pharmacist to pay his way through medical school. He told us that back then, if he saw someone come in with an opioid prescription, they usually had a disease like terminal cancer. They didn't have low back pain or osteoarthritis or fibromyalgia. It was really uncommon for doctors to put patients on opioids for months or years at a time. Dr. Yearling watched that change over the course of a decade. By the mid-1990s, doctors weren't just giving opioid prescriptions for end-of-life pain. They were giving them for chronic pain. Like he said, fibromyalgia or osteoarthritis. As the opioid crisis got worse, Dr. Yearling started to wonder, how did this happen? Why did doctors decide that these addictive painkillers were suddenly safe? He started digging through medical journals, and he found that these claims were based on a letter, a letter that two researchers wrote to the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980. I want to emphasize this was not a study. It was not a report. It was a letter. I... I read it and I thought, holy shit, this, this doesn't say anything. The letter Dr. Yearling found was just 101 words long, but it has been cited over 600 times, mostly during the opioid boom of the 1990s. It's really, really uncommon for a medical study to be cited more than 100 times. For a five-sentence letter to the editor to be cited more than 600 times is... I mean, it's it's unheard of. In particular, there were 14 words right at the end that doctors and drug companies loved to cite. They said, quote, 
The development of addiction is rare in medical patients with no history of addiction. But here's the thing. The letter had no data to back up this point. It only looked at patients who were given a short course of opioids during their hospital stay. It did not include anybody sent home with a bottle of pills. In 2017, it's hard not to look back and and say, well, in 2002, why wasn't I more critical of these key opinion leaders and the drug reps who came by with pills that were stronger than morphine? And why, why didn't I, you know, ask a few more questions? Dr. Yearlink remembers this as a really challenging time to practice medicine. He had patients who were coming in seeking treatment for pain. And all of a sudden, these pharmaceutical companies say, we can fix that pain. It's very common. Certainly was even more common back then to go to medical education events. Typical would be a fancy restaurant. Then you'd go and you'd be wined and dined and you'd company would pick up the tab for the dinner and you would hear a well-meaning and articulate and accomplished specialist in the field of pain tell you that you could effectively use opioids more readily than you had and Also, that if you didn't do that, you were not being a compassionate physician. You were being opiophobic. You were depriving your patients of a therapy that could really improve their quality of life and function. And to be fair, we did see people, I saw them myself, who I would put on opioids for chronic pain, and they could suddenly do things they couldn't do before. They felt amazing. The opioid epidemic happened because pharmaceutical companies distorted science. But it also happened because chronic pain is a frustrating, maddening condition. And millions of Americans were desperate for a solution. At first, like Dr. Yearling says, it looked like long-acting opioids just might be that solution. And if you know anything about doctors, they love solving patients' problems. You know, my, my life story, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, I wanted to be a physician my whole life as far back as I can remember. I loved helping people. This is Daniel Young. He's a primary care doctor in a small town in upstate New York called Windsor. He went to medical school in the 1980s and finished up his residency in the 1990s. I just loved everything. I loved kids. I loved obstetrics, you know, pregnancy. Um, I loved taking care of older patients. When I talked to Dr. Young on the phone, it was clear he is really enthusiastic about his work and his patients. He has been at the same family practice for decades. The family practice was part of a regional hospital system. And in the mid-1990s, it instituted a new policy. It required doctors to ask every patient about their pain. Pain had become the fifth vital sign in Dr. Young's clinic. Nurses would bring patients into the room, take their blood pressure, ask why they're there. Then they would ask, you know, are you having any pain today? Just became a a standard question that every patient was asked. Now, if you go to the doctor's office for a backache, you're obviously going to talk about pain. Dr. Young says the problem started when people came in for a rash or a checkup and were asked about their pain levels. Then they start, you know, thinking, well... Yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, my back was hurting the other day or, you know, I had this pain or that pain. And because the patient has talked about pain, it's weird if Dr. Young doesn't do something about it. So now you have a patient in a room that's expecting treatment for something they maybe weren't even there for. And you can't, like, just blow it off. 
patients were expecting treatment for pain, and there were these new long-acting opioids to treat that pain. The results were not surprising. You know, I, I've definitely increased the amount of long-acting pain medication that I was providing to patients, absolutely. Eventually, though, doctors all across the country started to notice something was definitely wrong. For Dr. Young, it was when more and more patients started coming into his office asking about pain prescriptions. You would ask them, you know, well, you know, why'd you come to me? Oh, well, a friend of mine, you know, goes to you. So it was kind of like a word of mouth. All of a sudden you start realizing, hey, what's going on here? Am I, am I overprescribing? Am I giving it to the wrong people? Because now I'm starting to get more questionable patients, you know, that want pain medication. So... Yeah, definitely like a light bulb goes off saying, hey, there's something, something's not right here. Over the past decade, people have started putting the pieces together. It turns out those long-acting opioids are addictive after all, very addictive, which means that doctors have given patients lots and lots and lots of addictive pills. Because like I said, we're out there to help people, not to cause them harm. And uh, I definitely think that over the years, there have probably been some patients that I have caused harm. Which brings us all the way back to where we are today. So today, New York State is taking action to address the heroin and opiate epidemic by focusing on the ounce of prevention. The problem starts in the doctor's office. This is a New York assemblyman speaking about these new state laws that make it harder for people like Dr. Young to prescribe opioids. Too many doctors are liberally handing out these drugs. America does not have a pain crisis. We have a prescription crisis. Last March, the federal government also tightened guidelines on opioid prescribing. But Dr. Young, he didn't think these laws went far enough. He thought hospitals and doctor offices needed to revise their own policies to stop asking about pain at every visit. Our resolution went to the AMA House of Delegates. Two decades after pain became the fifth vital sign, Dr. Young stood before the American Medical Association. It is the largest doctor group in the country, and there were hundreds at its annual meeting in Chicago. Dr. Young argued the AMA should not view pain as a vital sign. And that resolution passed easily. I think everyone was for it. Most doctors agree with this decision wholeheartedly. When they look back at how opioids spiraled out of control, they regret asking about pain at every visit. So when I talked to James Campbell, the guy who suggested they ask about pain at every visit, I asked him if he had any regrets. His answer surprised me. Pain should be, I think, a vital sign because it's so critical to the quality of life. Dr. Campbell thinks we should still measure pain because it makes doctors talk about pain. He's worried that if doctors stop asking, we'll go back to lots of patients suffering in silence. 
Now, what might be happening is that there's a pendulum switch, so that doctors are even asking the question: Well, maybe we shouldn't talk with patients about their pain because we raise the expectation that they'll just want a prescription for opioids, and that is an unfortunate conflation of ideas. Doctors began prescribing opioids because they saw an epidemic of untreated chronic pain. Now they have ratcheted back those prescriptions after seeing that opioids can be deadly and addictive. But that epidemic of chronic pain, it has not gone away. There are 50 million Americans who deal with chronic pain. It is the leading cause of disability for those under 45. We've learned that opioids are not a good treatment option for many of these people, but the frustrating truth is there often aren't other good treatments available. That's why long-acting opioids became so popular in the first place. People were looking for a solution. What happens to those people now? I just sort of decided that maybe this would be a good opportunity for me to see to what extent I still need this medication. I understand the dangers of opioids very clearly, but not having the pill at all, like that's total helplessness. On the next episode of the Impact, we are continuing this story. We are looking at the new movement in pain medicine, something doctors call pain acceptance, and we are talking to patients who live with pain and are trying to navigate this new world, where doctors say, "We can't fix your problem. You're." Going to have to live with some level of pain. The Impact's producer is Bird Pinkerton. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger, and our editor is Amy Drozdovska. We had engineering and mixing help on this episode from Peter Leonard and Pedro Alvira. Our theme music is by Miles Ewell, and you also heard music in this episode from Pottington Bear and Chris Zabriskie. Our social media accounts are handled by Julie Bogan, and the impact was co-created by myself and Liz Sheltons. A big thank you to Sam Quinones, who wrote the book Dreamland, which was really helpful in researching this episode. You can subscribe to the Impact on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. We'd love it if you left us a review or sent us an email at impactatvox.com. And one other quick request: we are still collecting emergency room bills for that project I told you about in our first episode. If you haven't submitted one already, we would be so thankful if you would drop us a bill at erbills.vox.com. That is erbills.vox.com. We'll see you next week.